never say die. Forty going on fourteen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Forty Going On Fourteen. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh, and this week we are learning about the true history of the most famous place Ozzy Osbourne ever used as a bathroom. <laughs> he can't go back to Texas now, can he? He can't go back to San Antonio for sure. Sharon! <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's been lifted. I, 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 it was a lifetime ban, but it's been lifted. Like, Wait, can Dave Matthews? Not in Chicago. Or at least that, <laughs> at least that one bridge. Uh, to be fair, if you saw Ozzy on his reality show, the idea of him being past a lifetime ban is plausible. True. He's going so far past the warranty. He's on the other side, him and Keith Richards. <laughs> if you like washed up rock singers, you might like the shows on Geek Life Radio. Yeah, we'll run You'll with that. find such shows as History of Bad Ideas, HTML All the Things, the Day One Patch Podcast, and of course, Geek Life's own Rad Dad Radio Hour, the Smorgasbord. The stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas. I was muted. I couldn't get to it. Oh, I, I didn't know you were going for that. It's, was, like a re- it's like a reflex action for him. Right? I, I clapped it out, but I was muted. And I was like, oh, damn. See, I was He's counting like, on you, you Texan. Well, like, I literally why, did why it. Why am I, mean, I clapping? It was, it was a literal reflex, but it, I was muted. <laughs> uh, story mm. of our show. That's awesome. So if you're looking for more of it, you can find us on Apple and Google Podcasts. We are on Podbean, Blueberry, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Podcasts. And if you'd like to give us a call, let us know an idea you may have for a show. Give us a ring at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Or if you'd like to join us in our everyday chatting, you can click our Contact Us link on Facebook and get to our Discord chat, which this week we've been talking about fingernails. If you're on our Facebook page, you see one of our one of our listeners um, Mel. did her yeah Mel did her nails up for Back to the Future, and it's really detailed. Yeah, and she, it also uh, tied into uh, our little slogan there: "The butts to the front." She must have the tiniest little brushes. <laughs> one hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Josh, do we have any feedback? Any voicemails? Or sure, hope not. All right. <laughs> In that case, it's about that time. This week in music, movies, and TV. And sports. That was lame. Well, yeah, yeah. We figured we we want you to participate, so we didn't want to tell you. Sports. Gosh, I can't get up there anymore. Sports. That's That's what she said? Wow. Maybe. Maybe. Either way, the theme for this week is October 24th, 1960, the release of the original The Alamo. All right. Uh, So music, the number one song in the land was Save the Last Dance for Me by The Drifters. Great song. I really like that song, yeah. Kind of concerning, though, that he's like, yeah, I brought you here. They're kind of like passing around the dance floor. But he's like, yeah, I got the last one. What are you doing? They're obviously swingers. Oh, it is the 60s. Huh. I never thought of it that way, but... Okay. No I don't know. I mean, he's he's uh, confident. He brought her there. If she wants to dance with other people, he doesn't give a shit. He, he uh, knows who's taking her home. It's could have been called <laughs> named it. I have the keys. <laughs> uh, sloppy seconds. All right. So, born yeah. October nineteenth, Daniel Mark Woody Woodgate is an English musician, songwriter, composer, and record producer. 
In a career spanning more than 30 years, Woody came to prominence in the late 1970s as the drummer for the English, a.k.a. band Madness, and went on to become no, a wait, member... No, wait, wait, no, wait on, what? Dude. What? Here's what just happened? Guy. I just realized what I did. What just happened? I feel like I'm taking <laughs> crazy pills. Oh, I realized the what English I did. English, a.k.a. band? All right, Parles. Jesus so Christ. Woody came to prominence really for the fourth for, for the fourth time. Woody came to prominence in the late 1970s as a drummer for the English ska band Madness, and went on to become a member of the alternative rock band uh, Voice of the Beehive. I almost messed it up again. Woodgate began his solo career in 2015, releasing the album In Your Mind. Good Lord. In Your Mind. <laughs> English, uh, a.k.a. band. The English, a.k.a. band. I thought that was a weird sentence. I'm like, what is English, a.k.a. band? Yeah, that's the what question, Joel. What is English? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Mike. See, my, I, Mike is able to make fun of you right now. And that's, yeah. That, and wait till he gets started. I also have to say, I love Madness. They're a fun band to listen to. What about English, a.k.a.? <laughs> <laughs> They're my favorite English, a.k.a. band. Yeah. <laughs> Good God! Huh. I had not considered them ska, but I guess yeah, madness has been considered ska. Yeah, it's... they're like what second wave? I don't remember what wave. Yeah, they're was. they're uh, third wave ska, but or it's like wave. a bunch of guys in checkered checkered suits, fourteen like... people on the stage with trumpets and guitars, and yeah, around but, the same yeah, time. Well, would like... you consider them if you don't consider them ska? Well, no, it's it's not that like I disagree. It was just that I never thought of them as ska before. Oh. Yeah, I don't disagree. I was just like, oh, yeah, I guess, yeah, they're a ska band. Hey, you, don't listen to that. Listen to this. All right. So finally, so I can get the hell out of here. (laughs) Jennifer Yvette Holliday, born October 19th in Houston, is an American singer and actress who started her career on Broadway in musicals such as Dreamgirls and Your Arms Too Short to Box with God. She later became a successful recording artist, best known for her debut single, The Dream Girls Number, and I am telling you I'm not going, for which she won a Grammy. She also won a 1982 Tony Award for Dream Girls. Wow, there's a lot of things about Dream Girls in there. Yeah. Well, Jennifer Holliday. She was in Dream Girls. I don't know if you know that. Oh, that's where and, I know her from. And your arm's too short to box with God. It's like a T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to movies. The number one movie in the land was Ben-Hur, returning to number one in its 48th week of release, knocking off the dark at the top of the stairs. Now, is that the sequel to Ben-Gay or Dun-Hur? Or neither? It's a sequel to him-Hur. Oh. He-Who? Herder. Herber, Herber. So I looked up the the dark at the top of the stairs, thinking it's some old-school 60s horror movie that I had not seen. Was I wrong? Stars Robert Preston... Dorothy McGuire, Eve Arden, and Angela Lansbury. It's about a traveling salesman who loses his job. Uh, huh. Yeah. Hmm. And then Maybe. apparently his wife accuses him of having an affair with Angela Lansbury. <clears throat> with the dark at the top of the stairs is his wife waiting for him to come home. Yes. Huh. Maybe. I don't know. It's based off a of play. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, Bradley Daryl Wong, better known as B.D. Wong, was born on October 24th as an American actor. Wong won a Tony Award for his performance as Song Lilang in M. Butterfly, and he was nominated for an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series for his role as White Rose in Mr. Wo- Robot. Mr. Warbot? <laughs> Mr. Robot. 
He has had roles on Law and Order Spe- Special Victims Unit, Oz, Awake, Gotham, Seven Years in Tibet, and as Dr. Henry Wu in the Jurassic Park franchise. Whoop, whoop. Wong is the host of the HLN medical documentary series, Something's Killing Me with B.D. Wong. Probably dinosaurs. <laughs> or an AKA band. Tiny arms. <laughs> Boxing with God. Wong has also done extensive voiceover work and stage acting. The best known of his voice acting roles is that of Captain Lee Shang from the Mulan franchise. I like B.D. Wong. I do yeah. too. And I've been in a very Jurassic Park, Jurassic World mood the last few days. Yeah, ditto. We've been watching... Uh uh camp cretaceous with uh the kids and it's surprisingly good like and and for a show that's rated y7 on netflix there's a lot of murder happening that's what i heard from my niece and nephews they were watching it and they're like oh yeah people are dying left and right and i'm like this is a kid's show right but they're like kids about death and dinosaurs they're like it's okay it's none of the kids die it's other people uh that's not true uh little spoiler alert i won't say which child and Ooh. I don't know, I haven't gotten all the way through the the second season yet, and there's still one more season after that, but in the end of the first season, one of the main kids dies. At least dun, dun, dun. that's what they're, and one of the other kids is de- dealing with survivor guilt. So talk about a kid-friendly show. Is that, is, is that the one with the, the annoying guy, the rich kid with the cell phone cameras all the time? Yeah, there's, well, they're, they're all rich except for the kid that won the trip there. Who was supposed to go with his dad, but his dad died before they could go. What? Yeah. It's, and it, the movie, or the, I'm sorry, the, the series takes place, uh, like there's this explicit scene that uh, ties it in with uh, Jurassic World. Like one of the scenes is ex- what's going on on the other side of the park during Jurassic World. The kids are on a different part of the, the same park. So, so it's not like post all this and they've finally gotten everything under control. It's. You haven't seen the most recent movie, have you? They no. the kids. I was going to say you can't go back to the park after the most recent movie. <laughs> that part was in the trailer. That's true. Yeah, the the kids. Yeah, the kids are at Camp Cretaceous at the same time that uh, Jurassic World is happening, and then when everything goes to shit, uh, it, that's um, when like the helicopter crashes into the the big glass building. Uh, when uh, Ronnie's helicopter goes down. Yep, that's exactly. The kids are already. Uh, uh, trying to get to safety at that point when that happens. So it's, well, it, yeah. so wow. yeah. I'm just saying, I, I'd want to go further because mm-hmm. I'm in the mood, but soon we're going to do the Jurassic Park 2 versus uh, Jurassic World 2 show. So Mike will finally find out what we're talking to, about. And this has nothing to do with the Alamo. So back to, uh, back to movies. Yeah. Uh, on October 27th, the British film Saturday Night and Sunday Morning was released. The first of the British social realist wave. One of a series of kitchen sink drama films made in the late 1950s slash early 1960s as part of the British new wave of filmmaking is about a young man who spends his weekends drinking and partying, all the while having an affair with a married woman. In 1999, the British Film Institute named it the 14th all-time on their top 100 British films list. Huh. Hmm. I'm not familiar with that one. Sounds like a uh, before, or, or not, um, 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 Alfie. That's what I was trying to think. I couldn't think of the name. Like oh yeah, must, Alfie must be in that same genre. Is that like a that's a, a thing with them? The Alfiness of what did I just say? Alfiness? That's ridiculous. Hmm. All right, so moving on to TV. Hey, the top, uh, well, oh, real what? quick, Mike, you might no? be interested in this. It stars Albert Finney. Saturday okay. night, Sunday morning. Albert Finney's yeah. the main character. I mean, while I do like Albert Finney, have I outed myself as a huge Albert Finney fan? Yes. Yep. I have. Yep. More than once. Yep. 
God damn. Well, then awesome. I got to check this out. <laughs> All right. So TV top shows in the land were Gunsmoke, Wagon Train, The Andy Griffith Show, and the acronym of the week, which is HGWT. Pretty sure that's uh, Hagrid's got wobbly tits. <laughs> He's not wrong. This is this predates uh, the Harry Potter franchise, so no, that is not correct. Doesn't that would be Hagrid? <laughs> that would be Have Gun. Will travel. I think J.K. Rowling tweeted that she actually wrote the books in 1959. So I, I, I think you know. It's, is that canon now? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're wrong. You may think that, but I am sure that you are wrong. We'll agree to disagree. No. When in wrong. Rome, Patrick. When in Rome. <laughs> that doesn't mean what you think it does. All right. So the fourth and final televised debate between John F. Kennedy and Richard M. Nixon took place on October 21st. Americans, for the first time, could tune in and watch the debates on television, and the contrast between the two candidates was clear. Kennedy himself said after the election that it was TV more than anything else that turned the tide towards his victory. Huh. Well, yeah, if you... You know, you hear Nixon talk, and then you see him, and you're like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there, there was one guy was, like, all calm, cool, and, and collected, and young, and the other guy was all Richard Nixon. Sweaty and <laughs> mush-mouthed. And... and Richard Nixon was a, a very intelligent man, but he was also looked very much like the— Richard like, Nixon. Like, like Richard Nixon, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was we, no Albert Finney. We're yeah, trying he, to push it here, but you look like Richard Nixon. I, mean, I am Richard Nixon. <laughs> well, that's the problem, sir. He's, he's not going to win a beauty contest against John F. Kennedy. Chowda. He, he got the $10 second prize. I don't even know if he got that. He won the best hog at the, <laughs> he got, at the 4-H he got competition. Mr. Congeniality. <laughs> Wait, no. Can't get that either. Uh, uh. He got a participation badge. Yes, there you go. He, right. he got the participation program. Moving I, on to sports. Oh, say, I, I lucked out this week. <laughs> yep, sports. On October 26th, the AL approved the Washington Senators' move to St. Paul to become the Minnesota Twins, and they announced upcoming franchises in L.A. and Washington, D.C. for 1961. The Senators. Yep, that's going back. Yep. Well, I mean, they, they the Senators stayed in Washington. The Washington, D.C. team then became the Washington Senators. The, the Senators changed into the Twins. And L.A. was the Angels, in case you were wondering. Oh. Which are now in Anaheim. <laughs> I wasn't wondering. <clears throat> well, then don't listen to that. I was feigning, you know, like I was just feigning. Yeah, it's not that interesting, interested. but it's just. Talking about the thing again, just nod. <laughs> All right, Muhammad Ali's first professional fight took place on October 29th in Louisville, Kentucky, when he was still known as Cassius Clay. He beat Tunney Hunsaker on points in six rounds. Ah, good old Tunney Hunsaker. Yeah, Tunney Hunsaker. What a name. And lastly, Michael DeAndrea Carter was born October 29th in Dallas, Texas. He is a former NFL player and track and field athlete. He played with the San Francisco 49ers and was a three-time Pro Bowl and four-time All-Pro selection. He helped the 49ers win three Super Bowls. He was also an Olympic athlete, winning a silver medal in the shot put in the 1984 Summer Olympics. Carter set the American National High School record of 81 feet 3.5 inches in the 12-pound shot put, adding more than 9 feet to the previous record. He set this mark in 1979, and no high school athlete has come within 2 feet of this record since. In 2004, this record was selected by USA Track and Field as the 16th greatest moment in American track and field over the previous quarter century, the only high school mark to make the top 25 greatest wins. 
Now, when you said football player who was uh, uh, an Olympic athlete, I was at first I was like imagining like him doing the hundred yard dash or something. I'm like, what position did he play? Was he like a punter? And then yeah. I got, you said shot put, and I went, oh, yeah. He threw a 12-pound shot put 80 feet. That is ridiculous. Yeah. Beat the previous one by nine, and no one's been able to get within two feet of it. Yeah. That's... He had a good day that day. I do not know I what mean... this guy looks like, but I'm laying a bet. If I Google his image, he's going to look like he swallowed a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine throwing a child's bowling ball, like, two houses. All right. I don't understand this at all. I put or, it this into image search. And I got a nothing but pictures of weddings. Uh, I put it in and I found him. And yeah, oh. he's not, he was not a big dude when he threw the shot, but at least in the picture they've got here. Oh, wait, there he is. He's not that big a dude. I mean, he's, he's definitely I mean, got some muscles on him, but. But that's ridiculous. He doesn't look like the rock or something, you know, like I was expecting him to be like kind of bulky. Yeah. I expect I, him to look like Ram Man from He-Man. Right. Do you know what position he played, Pat, on, in football? Um, I can look. No, up, I, I don't. No, no, he was a nose tackle. That's what it was. Meaning, nose meaning, he, yeah, nose guard, nose tackle, uh, the center of the defensive line. Oh, okay. So that totally that not what I was thinking. <laughs> he specifically <laughs> only tackled noses. I'm like, I didn't realize the play has got that specific. But All right, you tackle his schnoz, get him out of commission. I don't want him smelling anything for a week. All right, please stop me. <laughs> no, no, I'm just letting the rope go. Good to see that's working out for everybody. So, yeah, that's the end of the tweet. Why don't you play us off, keyboard, Joel? What? Interesting. You're not going to change that up. <clears throat> there we go. All right. All right. All right. So, 1960, the Alamo. In 1836, a small band of soldiers sacrificed their lives in a hopeless combat against a massive army in order to prevent a tyrant from smashing the new Republic of Texas. I think this was based on a true story, wasn't it? Damn right it was. <laughs> You're going to get them started, man. Uh, so this is directed by John Wayne, who also did the Green Berets. I did not know that. The Ballad of the Green Berets. Yep. It's a very generous definition of the word directed. Yeah, he wasn't great at the directing thing. That's what was said. But uh, also the uh, writing credits had James Edward Grant on there, who was also the writer for the Comancheros, the Sheepman, the Angel and the Badman, Hydehauser and Hydehauser, Honcho and the Apaches. These are great names. The Barbarian and the Geisha. Ooh, I want to see that. He did that right before the Alamo. But this is also starring John Wayne as Colonel Davy Crockett, Richard Widmark as Colonel Jim Bowie, uh, Lawrence Harvey as Colonel William Barrett Travis, a Kind of out of place, Frankie Avalon is Smitty. Yeah, very young, <laughs> out of place. Yeah. Um, oh, and uh, Richard Widmark, uh, he was in our Mur Murder on the Orient Express show. Yeah. Oh. Big name. Big name. Yeah, huge name. Big guy. Um, Patrick Wayne, Captain, J Captain James Butler Bonham, Linda Crystal as Flaka, Joan O'Brien as Miss Sue Dickinson, Chill Wills as <laughs> Beekeeper. Great name. Great name. Uh, Joseph Kalea as Juan Seguin. Seguin. Ken, Seguin. Sorry. Ken Curtis as Captain Almer Dickinson. And uh, Jester Harrison as Jethro. Vita Ben Borg as Blind Nell. 
John Dirks is Jocko. I put these all in here because I wasn't sure if I was going to recognize all of, you know, with all the names in them, but everybody in this I remember. Denver Pyle is Thimblerg, also the father of Gomer Pyle, if you didn't know that. And also guess, Uncle Jesse. Yes. Yeah, Denver. I was going to say, you, you know Denver Pyle. Oh, yeah. Not personally, but well, maybe you do. I might. You never know. Ayesa Wayne as Angel Dickinson, Hank Warden as Parson, William Henry as Dr. Sutherland, Bill Daniels Colonel Colonel Nell, Wesley Lau as Emil Sand, Chuck Robertson as the Tennessean, Gun Big Boy Williams as Lieutenant Irish Finn, and then Olive Carey as Ms. Dennison. Oh, wait, sorry, one more. Richard Boone as General Sam Houston. Nick Boone. Yes. So, some trivia Ooh, on this one. Trivia, yes. Yes, John Wayne originally intended that Richard Widmark was going to play Davy Crockett, while Wayne himself would have taken a small role as Sam Houston so he could focus his energy on directing the picture. However, Wayne was only able to get financial backing if he played one of the main parts, so he decided to play Crockett and cast Widmark as Jim Bowie. I mean, I'm not surprised. I mean, they they wanted to sell it, I'm sure. Yeah, they wanted, they wanted... You know, they want John Wayne. You know, that's what people are coming to see. They're coming to see John Wayne. Yeah. It was the first but not last of many compromises when making this movie. Mm-hmm. A hundred percent. John Wayne also wanted to cast James Arness as Sam Houston. However, Arness did not turn up for an interview with Wayne. So Richard Boone was cast instead, and Wayne never really forgave Arness for not showing up. That's kind of rough. If John Wayne wanted to see me for coffee, I'd show up. Right? So... But the Alamo was nominated for seven Academy Awards, winning Best Sound. Its successful bid for several Oscar nominations over such films as Psycho, which received four, and Spartacus, which received six, was largely due to intense lobbying by producer John Wayne. But then there's Chill Wills. Chill Wills' aggressive (laughs) campaign for Best Supporting Actor was considered tasteless by many, including Wayne, who publicly apologized for it. Wills took out an advertisement on The Hollywood Reporter claiming that we of the Alamo cast are praying harder than the real Texans prayed for their lives in the Alamo for Chill Wills to win the Oscar. Wow. wow. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. I read that. And I, lo- I, found, I found a picture of the ad when I was looking. I'm like, good God. The sack on this fucker. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, Wayne took out his own advertisement, calling the claim untrue and reprehensible, and then he was sure that Willis's intentions were not as bad as his taste. Uh, <laughs> Willis's publicity agent, get this name, W.S. Bow-Wow Wajahowitz. <laughs> what is with that name? I don't know, but it's amazing. Wow. Uh, he accepted blame for the ill-advised effort, claiming that Wills had known nothing about it. And I think he was lying. That's like Nicolas Cage making the same thing for, like, uh, uh, World Trade Center. Like, he would take out a similar ad for World Trade Center, you know, saying... I deserve the I deserve an Oscar for this. Yeah, like the the New Yorker. Imagine, were imagine if Leonardo harder. DiCaprio put it took, put, took out an ad, be like, if the members, if if all the dead people of Titanic could come back, they'd vote for Leonardo for best actor. <laughs> but yeah, I read that. It was just like, oh my god. So, but the climactic <laughs> battle is, scenes. That is horrible. <laughs> no, it's. And plus the and and, and just the, the cherry on the top of the fa- is the fact that the guy who took blame for it was named W S Bawow Wojohowitz. Yeah, right. What is up with you Polacks with that spelling and you get Wojohowitz out of that? What That's it says Wojohowitz. 
No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then how would you say it? Phonetically, that is Woj Ki Chow It Kids. Stein. <laughs> I got nothing, man. You're just looking at it wrong, I guess. All right, so the climatic battle scenes involved 7,000 extras, 1,500 horses, and 400 Texas Longhorn cattle. And now that would all be digital. That's, yeah. I was kind of impressed by that. That's a lot going on. Oh, yeah, they, they didn't spare any expense. It's like a Cecil B. DeMille production. <clears throat> right. Ah. And knowing that John Wayne was strapped for cash in producing the movie, uh, in fact, he actually... Uh, took out mortgages on his boat and all of his homes and did not actually pay off the debt on this movie until... 1971. Yeah, 1971. Yeah, that was something I I, uh, uncovered while I was doing my research on this as well. Yeah. So uh, Richard Boone agreed to waive his fee if Wayne gave him the beautiful buckskin jacket that he wore as Sam Houston. Wayne happily agreed, and that was a sweet jacket. With, like, the wings on the front panels and all that. That was mm-hmm. nice, nice jacket. And also, I don't know if you noticed, the gun that Bowie was carrying was a actual uh, rifle called a knock volley gun. It was developed for the British Royal Navy, and the idea was being able to fire seven barrels all at once on a shotgun to sweep the decks of opposing ships or destroy rigging. It was an unsuccessful design, as nobody could handle the recoil of seven shotgun shells going off at the same time. Because it would it would turn your collarbone into dust when you got it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you may clear the deck, but you're going to be pulling yourself out of the water. I mean, it's good. But yeah. Hercules himself has to show up to shoot this gun. Yeah, I'll, I'll post a picture in the show notes of this gun because it it's ridiculous that they would even, at no point in designing this thing, would somebody go, doesn't this seem silly? <laughs> it's kind of badass it is it's bad like, it's 100 bad no one can shoot this gun more than once no one has to shoot this gun more than once <laughs> you shoot it you kill yourself but you kill everybody else too so yeah. right so question is this the first viewing for any of us yes 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 no Not i was gonna surprised. say i think patrick it's required viewing in grade school that's you think you're joking no i don't think i'm joking yeah I know how Texas is. Seventh, it's a whole other country. Seventh grade, seventh grade. there's a mandatory Texas history class, and that was the first time I saw this movie. Holy crap. The reason I say holy crap is because its relationship to history is, at best, a passing acquaintance. Oh, with what actually happened? Yes. Oh, yeah. But it was something, you know, I mean, it's something you obviously have to cover in a Texas history class. Oh, for and sure. And at that point, it was the only movie made about it, so... You know, as I was watching the movie, I kept waiting for the go to the basement, but they never went to the basement. I'm still kind of wondering why. <laughs> yeah. Susie Where's the basement? <laughs> Susie made the same joke, and I'm like, you know what? I bet if you go there and make that joke, nobody will laugh. No one's going to fame that phone. They'll probably beat you. Yeah. Punch you in the throat. Yeah, this is this is a There is no basement, just to be, make that clear. Yeah, yeah. I figured that out. Pee Wee taught us anything. Mr. Herman. <laughs> right out of the gates, I have to say that they deserve the Oscar for the music in this. Music is great, uh, and there is something for the unbridled spectacle of 7,000 costumed extras in a battle scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's enough to make me like this movie more than it's going to sound like I did over the next 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> 
because there were some fucking problems. Uh, there were a lot of uh, speeches that were hard to listen to, that uh, were badly acted, badly written, advanced the plot not at all. And like I said, the whole thing left out, it's basically a propaganda piece for the Cold War. Like John Wayne wanted to show those damn comedies uh, how rough and tough the Americans are, and so anything that made look made America look better or tougher was put in, whether it was historically accurate or not. And anything that uh, could potentially make America look a little worse was conveniently edited. Although they did spend an, an inordinate amount of time praising the Mexican army, that's yeah. actually one of the problems. Yeah. Because the actual historical Mexican army were untrained uh, conscripts who were poorly equipped and who were pretty much forced into battle by Santa Ana. But you're not rough and tough uh, Americans if you're not defeated only by the ultimate badass Spanish fighting force. So the fact that they took the extra time to praise these guys was actually sort of a problem. Yeah, because it was basically just, you know, setting up straw men. See, I didn't know enough about it to know any any different in terms of that. And I thought it was kind of, especially considering the time, kind of unusual. Um, and can I just say that I'm glad the uh, concept of uh, som- uh, sombrero messaging didn't ever catch on. <laughs> they were they were amazingly accurate with that hat, though. I, that's true. Sombreros are very aerodynamic. That's a true thing. I'm learning stuff already. We had I, a sombrero I, that we threw. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. That and the wicker nipple, remember? Yeah. <laughs> I, I do remember the wicker nipple. <laughs> but We um, digress. I do, I do want to, at one point, when all of us do get together for something, <clears throat> that we all can get into our foo-for-raw. <laughs> I've forgotten about that because the movie's like 14 hours. Yeah. It's right at the beginning. <laughs> right at the beginning. I'm like, that's the thing. It's like, shit, that's funny. I got to write that down. Otherwise, I'm going to forget it by the time this is over. What the fuck is a foo-for-raw? A foo-for-raw. When, when John Wayne showed up at the, uh, what does can C A N when he's spelling out cantina? Right. He's like, that means we're going to get out our foo-for-raw. Yeah, we're going to get out of these buckskins and into our foo-for-raw. <laughs> I'd miss that, I guess. <laughs> and the other question I have about the whole cantina scene. Is feather nose balancing a thing in Texas that I was just unaware of? No, yeah. that was and that, those are Tennessee boys, first of all. So, oh, okay, yeah. So it's a Tennessean thing. Is that what you're saying? No, I don't think that is an actual thing at all. I I'd never heard of that. <laughs> and okay, then how about the punching the guy with the <clears throat> fake teeth in the face game? Well, I mean, punching people is a national pa- or a state pastime, so I, mean, I can't necessarily, I can't argue that one. And fake teeth is uh, true all the way throughout all the South. So, <laughs> all right, it checks off on many different points. I'm I'm for it then. Uh, yeah. I, so, uh, so real quick, just I I'll, just to get this out of the way, um, <clears throat> there are um, certain things about Texas that I do not appreciate. There are a lot of things I, you know, I disagree with about Texas, and there are a lot of stereotypes about Texas that float around the world and around America. But this is one of the things about Texas that I wholeheartedly love and absorb and bleed. And I've been to the Alamo several times in person. I love the story. The whole thing appeals to me, and it's like one of the one of the founding stories of the entire state. 
and the the Republic of Texas, you know, never would have existed without the Alamo and all that stuff. So yeah, I love the Alamo. I love the story. I love everything about it. So see, you I have no idea how surprised I am about this right now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> because I was whole, uh, my whole expectation was going to be. I'm so sick of hearing about the Alamo, you know, that sort oh, of thing. Okay. Right. Oh, well, you actually did. Cause it know. could go either way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it really could. But no, I, I unabashedly love everything about the Alamo. And in my Texas history class, uh, for my final grade, for my final test, whatever, I built a, um, a, a mock model of the Alamo, the whole thing, like hmm. not just the church, like the whole grounds and everything. I took a, um, I took a large piece of plywood and, and actually made sand, you know, like, like, like sifted out some sand and put glue down and sifted the oh. sand over it and everything and put like two by, I used like wood and plaster of Paris and made every, and carved out everything. And it was, it actually went to um state competition and I won some awards. Do you still really? have it? No, no, it got destroyed. <laughs> That's uh, the one thing he doesn't have. <laughs> right? Exactly. So the, the only thing that this family never saved was that. Ozzy yeah, Osbourne but... showed up and pissed all over it. It melted. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you remember just, it, it at as, least. It was as big as a ping pong table, so it would, it would have been hard. To oh, jeez. Yeah. You remember it at least. So, you know, there's that. Yeah, I mean, I, I spent hours and hours of painstaking time putting that together. It was it was pretty impressive by the time I was done with it. Very cool. Can I just say it was a little strange, and I, I've not seen enough John Wayne movies to really, I guess know if this has happened in other films but it it kind of surprised me because i knew obviously i knew the ending of the movie who if anybody who's taken a history course knows about the alamo uh but it was kind of weird to you say you remember the alamo joel i already made that joke uh to see i'm I'm being serious that's the phrase you say you remember the alamo damn it yeah i i have a recollection of the alamo Um, i will i will stab you that, that to see john wayne die now, of course, they had to make him go out like as heroically as possible by, you know, lighting the lighting up the munitions, uh, but lighting up the munitions, but also getting stabbed with whatever that was that stuck in the door and then he pulled himself off of it. Right. I mean, they had to give him a super heroic death. And there was a part of me that's like, are they going to like rewrite history and John Wayne somehow going to get out of there? Uh, but yeah, that, that was a little weird. <laughs> That would have ruined the entire movie for everything if they'd have done that, because Texas yeah. would have been, yeah, up in arms. There would have been a revolt, yeah. but it it just it kind of threw me off because you know you're so used to seeing John Wayne kind of walk away and live to fight another day, but nope, he definitely did not live to fight another day. Whereas Frankie Avalon must have had some fucking hella survivor's guilt after that. Yeah, and that and that's a true story actually. That there was one one kid in the Alamo that they sent out as a messenger, and he didn't get back in time. Now, did they send him out as a messenger because they actually needed to get the message out, or did they send him out because they didn't want to see him get slaughtered with the rest both, of them? Probably, probably both. Yeah. Column A, column B. Yeah, I mean, they definitely were trying to get reinforcements. Yeah, at the same time, they're like, we are going to have to watch this kid get killed or babysit him the whole time. Well, they knew it was coming with Annette Finicello, so they had to make sure he survived. Yeah. You know, first time I've watched this, first time I've seen this movie, and I, uh, while I did have to do it in two parts, I had to take a break because I had to sleep. Um, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. It's it is it has its place in cinema history. It has its place in history, history, and yeah, the the story is not a hundred percent. But what you know, how often do you see a historical movie, you know, based on a true story type of thing where everything is. 100% correct. Well, I mean, this, this was closer to about 
Okay. It, it was pretty far off. Like when historians look at like uh, what films are high ranking in terms of historical accuracy, this is near the bottom of the barrel. Oh yeah, I was totally expecting that. You know, because this is all for the emotion. This is all for the uh, patriotism, patriotism, Texan, Texas. This is America type of thing. And that is 100 percent why John Wayne did it, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. The man, there's a a lot of Hollywood in this movie. Yeah, there is. The man ponied up. uh, I mean, he was in debt for 10 years to pay this movie back, you know, so this was a passion project of his. He put it together. I respect that. Well, and look at the end product. I mean, you think about somebody else like a. <clears throat> like a Tommy Wiseau who, you know, put all his money up for the room and look how that's remembered versus this where John Wayne put up a lot of the money and it's paying off in spades in terms of long-term lifespan and yeah accolades, I, et cetera. But everybody was in on it. You know, I do know that there was some, uh, I, I believe Widmark and uh, John Wayne were at odds during the filming of this because they both took separate political views That was the uh, story that John Wayne told. However, uh, apparently the real story is that John Wayne sucked as a director, and uh, several of the other actors backed up with Mark on that recollection of the events. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I I found the story about how this was made and how it interacted with history way more interesting than the film itself. So I spent a long time looking at stuff like that. Like, what exactly was different and what happened in the making of this spectacle? Because it is an amazing spectacle. Oh, yeah. You've got 400 Longhorn cattle running anywhere. That's a spectacle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it could have done without, like, the table dancing could have done without the table dance. could have done, you know, there's a lot of like filler type stuff that was in there and some of the awkward speeches that were in there also that, you know, with the, where, when they start kind of breaking the fourth wall and they're looking straight at you and making their speech to the camera mm-hmm. type of thing instead of, you know, acting. But I, like I said, I did have to take this in two bites, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, I took it in one, and there are some boring parts, and a lot of them are things that don't really advance the main story. Uh, most of what's going on with Flocka, you could cut that entire plot, and it does nothing to the story. Yeah, yep. the whole Flocka scene, I mean, there's 20 minutes you got back right there. Except for the pretty good fight between with uh, John Wayne and Woodmark fighting everybody. That was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you could have just filmed it up to that point and then just dropped it after that. Yeah. yeah. You know, just just film, get your good fight scene in with John Wayne, get his little, I tried to rescue the woman, she didn't want it, and then just drop it. And just move on? Yeah. Keep going. I did enjoy Travis trying to have a straight conversation with Crockett while he was in the cantina. That's like, all right, let's sit down and talk about this straight man to man. And then a guy gets thrown into the fireplace. Yeah. (laughs) Are we going to keep, and and, and Travis is just like, is this going to keep happening? I mean, this is, give me a moment here to bounce, juggle these 16 tennis balls and then have a sword fight with this guy. It's just the thing we do. We're from Tennessee. I mean, I, being the first time I've seen this and not being a huge connoisseur of John Wayne's films, I wasn't familiar enough with the history to have any sort of gripes about it as maybe, you know, Patrick who grew up with it. And I enjoyed it. I I found it to be um, a, a... fairly uh, kept me entertained for the three hour runtime. And I actually did both films back to back because I was at work when I was watching them. So I just had them on as I was working. So I did the full six hours in one chomp. Wow. Which, uh, which 
yeah, has its drawbacks, but at the same time, it's kind of nice to watch the original, have everything fresh in your head as far as characters, basic outline of the story, and then see how they redid it. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, what they left out, what they put in, how the characters are played. And again, despite historical accuracy, I felt like you you had said earlier, I think, Mike, that everybody was in on it, maybe not 100%, but pretty close. Um, And I I felt like it was a a solid film, you know, uh, regardless of the little nitpicky stuff Mm -hmm. or big nitpicky stuff. So, yeah. So you think uh, we've got enough remembrance on this one? What do you think, Pat? You're from Texas. I don't know if you've got anything else. Um, no, most of my stuff I'll save for the second half to talk about the actual Alamo itself because it was well, a lot more historically accurate. This was more of just an entertaining movie and not necessarily historically accurate, whereas the, the next one was a better combination of both. Can I ask one quick question, Pat? When you guys watched this in your class, um, your history class, did your teacher like – after or during the film say well this didn't happen or this happened did they kind of point out the problems with it i mean they didn't necessarily point out the problems with the movie it's just we went over what the history of it was after we watched it you know so it gave you kind of a visual interpretation and then they kind of clarified and gave you the actual real yeah story yeah okay That, that makes sense all right so when we come back we're going to talk about the 2004 hancock written what's his name Herbie? Herbie? No. <laughs> it's Herbie. Herbie. John Lee Hancock, the Alamo. Uh, how, how, how? Oh, wait, no, that's no, the top. Never mind. <laughs> what? I, I was trying to think of a John Lee Hooker song, which I guess technically that, although never mind. Never mind. Just move on, please, for the love of God. No, you, no, you, keep you, explaining. You, you were doing uh, ZZ Top anyway. I, I was, yeah. <laughs> hey, everybody, and welcome to the middle of the show, where we have the music from Geek Life Radio, and their artist song of the week is Ultra Combo with Power Rangers. Here's a little sample, and the full song will be played after the end of the show. talk about the 2004 the alamo uh starring dennis quaid others and no one saying really horrible things to try and get an oscar nod i'm looking at i'm looking at you chill chill wills and wajahowitz not so chill wills (laughs) tone it back chill uh this is 2004 is the alamo same plot same ending be weird if they changed it <laughs> this is okay. directed by John Lee Hancock, who has done such things as The Blind Side, Saving Mr. Banks, The Highwaymen, and most recently The Little Things, which is how, on my how, eight... how, how. That's that has absolutely nothing to do with ZZ Top. I don't even know why you're doing that. Explain yourself. No, he no. He, he doesn't know why he's doing it either. Don't don't he can't explain it. It's like a sneeze. <laughs> Writing credits go for uh, Leslie Boehm who did Darkest Hour, which is actually a pretty good sci-fi flick, Daylight, and Dante's Peak. He only writes uh, movies with D in the title. Apparently. Dante's Peak is like a guilty pleasure type of flick for me. It was okay. Yeah, yeah. it was all right. For the dearth of volcano flicks that came out at the same time. Pierce Brosnan versus the volcano. And we've got 
Stephen Goggin, who also did Doolittle, Serenia, and Traffic. Syriana. Syriana. Serenia. Mm-hmm. Serenia. Got it. So, Dennis Quaid is in this one. I said this before as a very intense Sam Houston. Billy Bob Thornton as Davy Crockett, which reading this first and then not seeing the movie, I was questionable about that upon entry. Upon entry. Uh-huh. And then he fucking stole every scene he was in. Mm-hmm. Jason Patrick, personal favorite of mine, is James Bowie. Patrick William is William Travis. I'm sorry, Patrick Wilson is William Travis. Emilio Echevarria. Did I get that? Close enough? I Probably. Sounds okay. good to me. Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Jordi Mola as Juan Seguin. Leon Rippey, great name. Seguin. <laughs> sorry. It's Sergeant. the city of Texas. That's the main okay, reason. That, yeah. <laughs> Wajahoets. Um, <laughs> Sergeant William Ward. Uh, Mark Blokas is James Bonham, Kevin Page, Blukas. God Lucas, damn, these yeah. glasses. What the hell? Uh, I'm getting old. <laughs> Kevin Page as M. Autry. Joe Stevens as Skurlock. Laura Clifton as Susanna Dickinson. Ricardo Chevara as Private Gregario Esparza. And Stephen Chester Prince as Lieutenant Forsyth. It's interesting. Even though she was a very, very small role, they didn't include Emily Duchanel on there. Which is actually a name, so. Hmm. What did she do? Well, she's Zooey Duchanel's sister, but well, no, she was. No. I, I'm not saying what. Oh, she was Patrick Wilson's wife at the beginning. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> she was barely in the movie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. She was only there for like two minutes, but she's a name. How I missed her. Yeah. Yeah. I, once, once it starts, once it starts getting things in the credits where it's like soldier number one, soldier number two. Right. <laughs> I'm like, I'm cutting it off there. But uh, some trivia on this one. This is one of the biggest box office bombs in history. Ended up costing, with marketing expenses, over $140 million. And by its second month of release, had only er- earned a worldwide gross of slightly more than $25 million. Oof. Yeah. That's a huge budget. That is. Lost, lost over $100 million. That's more than I'll make my whole life. $15 million of that $25 was all in Texas. Uh, also, an extra at one point had grabbed a bag of Doritos from craft services before being called to the set. Y'all see where this is going. <laughs> he stuffed it into his costume and got into formation. When action was called, the group charged across the field. When he got <laughs> shot, he fell dead to the ground and his bag of Doritos popped out. They had to reshoot the whole scene, and everyone from that point on was checked and frisked for Doritos. So, they call that the Dorito incident. That's that's where they got that plot on Always Sunny. I've, there, there's one episode where they're extras in a zombie movie. Oh, okay. And you can imagine how that goes with yeah. Frank yeah. Holmes. I saw well, that one. And D. But he's the one that had the food in his pocket. Yes. Yeah. He always has foods in his pocket, doesn't he? He's Just the trash the man. man. <laughs> <laughs> so Billy Bob Thornton, and this is kind of awesome, learned to play the violin for the scenes that required it. I wondered if that was actually him, because it was kind of cool. Uh, the answer is yes, and he's that sort of guy. Yeah, he is. He he looked like it. It looked like it was him playing it, but some of the stuff he was doing was kind of complicated. I mean, the violin's not an easy instrument to learn. No, uh, and but he I was can, doing some whacked out shit. I could I could see him being like, yeah, I'll pick it up. Don't worry, about it. I I'll, I get this. Well, he's a musician, so you know. I mean, and you know the other thing is depends on what other. Um, instruments he plays already. So, like, if he plays the mandolin, the mandolin is fretted the same way as a violin is. They they use the uh, the necks are the hmm. same. 
So if you can play the mandolin or vice versa, you can kind of switch between the two from what from what I understand from the one mandolin player that I know has told me. And if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. True. <laughs> ah, son of a so the death of David Crockett is depicted in this film is as depicted in this film is corroborated by the account of a Mexican soldier, Jose Enrique de la Pena. Though it is not translated in it would not translate into English until after the earlier Alamo film was made, this account makes the claim that Crockett was recognized by the Mexicans and was executed after the battle rather than killed during it. However, many historians have debunked it because the diary pages have twenty two different handwriting and it's and all the pages are different sizes. Maybe the uh, guy's just schizophrenic. Could be. So yeah. am I. Uh, De La Pena's own writing never once mentions Crockett or the Alamo itself. The diary surfaced in the possession of a coin dealer in Mexico named Jesus Sanchez Garcia Wajahoetz <laughs> in, ni- <laughs> in 1955. Bow Wow Wajahoetz. Friends called him Bow Wow. Oh, God. I, if, only I could have a, if only I could have a name like that. Uh, as da- the Davy Crockett craze took off due to the popularity of the Disney show, the Davy Crockett King of the Wild Frontier. Davy, Davy Crockett, King, King of the Wild, Wild Frontier. Frontier. There's going to be screaming. Yeah, I'm a screamer. Yeah, what a horrible last line. Yeah, that was kind of, that did not, that wasn't planned we'll, out well. We'll get, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Uh, during production, local news stations sent helicopters to get aerial footage of the Alamo set. This was causing so much interference that everyone on the set was told to give the copters the finger so they could not use any footage. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, because you're trying to do this big battle scene, this, and suddenly a chopper hovers past the background. I mean, that's got to be anachronistic. Right. So Crockett plays the Mockingbird Quickstep on his fiddle. The song is a version of Listen to the Mockingbird and was composed in 1855 and later was used by the Three Stooges as a theme song. Hmm. Oh. Yep. Wah, 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 you wah, pick wah, it up wah. when you were listening to it? Uh, well, I couldn't. I didn't put two and two together. I recognized the melody, but I didn't. I was just impressed when he started making the fiddle sound like a bird. I was like, "That's kind of neat." And I actually had my headphones off for that scene, so I saw on the subtitles, but I didn't actually hear it. Oh, it's too bad. It's actually a pretty good song. Yeah, it's 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 neat. It's a neat interpretation. <laughs> We've got. I'm like, it's kind of pretty. It means the throat slitting. Not that pretty. <laughs> There were some good lines in this. Mm-hmm. First viewing for all of us? Yes. Yep. 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 Patrick? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, really? <clears throat> yep. All I thought in you would have seen it. I gotta say I enjoyed this. This was so much more historically accurate, but what's interesting is this was heavily influenced by another historical event, like the Cold War influenced the first one. This was supposed to come out in 2002, and then 9-11 happened. Ah. So you had a couple of years there where any scenes of destruction of buildings were considered in poor taste. And this was supposed to be an ultra historically accurate uh, retelling of the Alamo to correct the sins of the 1960 film. And Ron Howard was set to direct. Then 9-11 happened and the studio started making a few compromises. And you get all those early 2000s war movies that are big on patriotism, but don't have a whole lot else to say. So they kind of split the difference between one of those, like uh, We Were Soldiers or The Patriot, and what they wanted to do with their original vision for the film, which caused Ron Howard to exit. And they still managed to get it mostly right. 
they just like like I said, there were some compromises for what the studio demanded uh, out of this picture. What what were some of the things they demanded? Well, mainly uh, to make a, a pro America sort of uh, war picture. Hmm. I mean, that's all of the uh, war movies in the time were kind of like that. But no, I, I was uh, pretty impressed with the historical accuracy, and Billy Bob Thornton stole literally every scene he appeared in. Yeah, he did. Well, one of the things that I appreciated about this was in the original, they he explains why the Alamo is so important and why he wants to keep the, the soldiers there and why he wants to defend it. And in this movie, once the Alamo is done, it still goes on for another 20 minutes because they show what happened after with Sam Houston and how that played out. And I thought that was it was nice because it, it gave the whole previous two and a half hours of film uh, context. I, I like that. context. I like that also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a little heavy handed right at the beginning of the film, like a lot of other early 2000s war movies where they're just like, OK, we have to start with the horrors of war and how bad it is before we have two hours of entertainment of people getting killed. Almost mm-hmm. the anti-war war movie opening where you've always got to start with the dead soldiers and the crying widows. And it was a little much. Oh, the the execution squads at the at the river and that sort of thing. Well, yeah, everything from the execution squads, them showing all the crying widows, the they're all dead, and then everyone's screaming, and then uh, Sam Houston is staring at a candle pensively. It, well, it was a little much, and I feel bad for anybody who didn't know the history of the Alamo because they're like, "Holy shit, the main characters are dead already. What happened?" <laughs> I don't know that there's anybody out there like that, but you know, you never know. Maybe. Uh, if you're that sort of person, your life is probably pretty tough, and this movie is the least of your problems. I think we met them at Gen Con. Uh, well, and I thought the portrayal of uh, Santa Ana and his army was probably a bit closer to reality. Mm-hmm. Yes, no? Yeah, After there were conscripts, conscripts who were trained on the road, and a lot of them died on the road. Now, you were talking about Sam Houston staring pensively at the candle. Honestly, I was kind of, I would say disappointed in Dennis Quaid, but until after the end of the Alamo, to see him finally bust out with with the final 20 minutes, Mm -hmm. he was great. I like Dennis Quaid. And I mean, he, he had a justification for what he was doing, but he was really playing fast and loose a bit there because he could have lost, you know. Well, they could have turned on him. Right. Yeah, he could have he could have had a mutiny on his hand uh, where, you know, everybody's like, um, yeah, you've lost your mind. Yeah. And Jason Patrick playing James Bowie is his best Doc Holiday. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to actually see the Bowie knife, you know, in the first one. I don't know that we really. Well, they didn't... they showed it a little bit, but it wasn't anything compared to the short sword that he was carrying around in this one. Yeah, they 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 made a point of, yeah. of the and knife. it was much more realistic as far as what what the Bowie knife did look like. This version, yeah, because it really was just a giant piece of metal. Well, that's what you need to get done, you know. Yeah, they also didn't uh, shy away from one of the more complicated parts of uh, the past, where the Texas Republic was, where a lot of Amer- Americans that saw slavery ending decided, well, we'll just go to Mexico and take our slaves there. But Mexico was anti-slavery. 
And that was something that uh, would not have fucking flown in the uh, John Wayne right, picture, yeah. even though it was 100% true. Well, and there was a huge fucking difference uh, with, what was the name of... Uh, Jethro? Yeah, where in the, the 1960 version, he's like, here's your papers, you're free. And he's like, no, if I'm a free man, sir, I'm going to stay. Or in this one, the guy's like, if you try and you know run, I will hunt you down. And bring you back, and you know the the guy's like once he's dead, he's like fuck it, I'm gonna try and get my way out of here. You know? Did, did they ever? How did that work out for him? I don't think they ever showed us what happened. To yeah, because I remember him, him sitting in the uh, hiding in the room with the with his suitcase. Yeah, and he just kept repeating the lines that he had been taught over yeah, and over. They didn't show if he got away or not. Okay. Yeah. I think it could pre- be presumed because of Santa Ana's brutality that nobody got away. Yeah, that was kind of the impression I got that even though he was going to try that tactic, that it wasn't going to work out for him. If I if I remember correctly, I think four people were allowed to live. It was like a uh, one of the wives and her two children and somebody else. I can't remember exactly who. But no, I what <laughs> that that short fat guy in the very beginning though, I was I, I was folding clothes and watching this at the same time. Out of the corner of my eye, I swear to God, I thought it was Newman. <laughs> And uh, combat scenes in this one, compared to the original, 100% better. You didn't have people dropping in unison or dropping before the gun got fired. Right. <laughs> There's, I think I think they did a great job with the, with the combat, especially the, the final scene with them all being chased down to the center of the church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether or not Davy Crockett survived to the end or survived after, you know, they, if he, they killed him the next morning or he was killed in battle. Um, I did some looking up on Davy Crockett as a person and the guy was a badass. I mean, you talk about bona fide frontierman. He, he literally hunted bears for a living. He, when he was 12, 13 years old, he went to school, got into a fight with the bully waited for the bully outside of school, kicked his ass, and then knew he was going to get in trouble in school and was going to get in trouble with his parents. So he joined a bunch of uh, steer herders and followed them for like five, six years. Just left. Kind of like the the Roosevelt of his day. Yeah. Uh, He just left, and he said when he finally got home, he came back after so many years, nobody knew who he was. And the other really cool thing, so uh, you know he was a senator. Mm -hmm. So Davy Crockett and... Uh, Andrew Jackson did not get along. Uh, he was extremely anti let's do the trail of tears thing. He was very, you know, did not want to re- relocate the Indians and that because of that Jackson and him were not eye to eye. They did not get along. But at one point they were exiting a funeral that has going on in Washington, DC, an attempted assassin jumped out of a bush with two flintlock pistols to kill Andrew Jackson. Both pistols misfired. Ooh. Right. Then this guy got his ass kicked by Andrew Jackson and Davy Crockett. Apparently, from where the story goes, Andrew Jackson pulled out his cane and started beating him with it. And then Davy Crockett jumped in because they were walking close to each other. Davy Crockett jumped in and just started slapping the guy around, too. That's interesting. I knew that whole story, but I never knew Davy Crockett was there with him. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, if you, I suppose if you're going to get an ass kicking, Andrew Jackson and Davy Crockett kicked my asses. Yeah, you wow. can't really feel too bad about that. Like, right. you're like, oh, damn it. But I mean, I feel bad. What I do feel bad for the guy is like both guns misfired. So going back to the conversation real quick, um, 
Santa Ana spared Travis's slave Joe, it says on Wikipedia. Oh, so he actually did historically get out. Yep. Oh, and Susanna, cool. Su- Susanna Dickinson, you know, uh, Lieutenant Dickinson's wife, Santa actually, Santa Anna actually offered to adopt their daughter, Angelina, and have the child educated in Mexico City, but she turned him down. Huh. huh. One of the things that uh, I was curious about, because when I was watching it, I don't know if I was not paying close enough attention, because it felt like when the final battle happened, it kind of, like, the battle itself kind of snuck up on me. I know they were kind of playing into it with Billy Bob plucking his, his fiddle, but... I'm wondering, and maybe Pat knows the answer to this, did it happen in the daytime like they showed in the 60 version, or did it happen at night that they no, snuck it, up? it happened between advantage? 5 and 5.30 in the morning. I knew that! <laughs> yep. Because yep. I... They 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 let they um stopped the volley because they were they were volleying them with cannonballs every single night to disrupt their sleep. And then the very final night before the battle, they didn't do it so that they would actually fall asleep because they were going to be weary. Oh wow! And then they came at them in the morning, five in the morning. That's wow. smart. Yep. They were historically accurate down to the idea that Travis was killed early in the battle with a shot to the forehead. Right, because he was one of the last ones killed in the inside the chapel. So I thought that was cool. I thought it was awesome that they played up the idea that, like, every one of those guys, they they didn't just, like, fight because they love America and love fighting because they're from Tennessee Mm -hmm. so darn much. (laughs) Most of them were there because uh, they were promised land or they were trying to do stuff they couldn't legally do at home. Uh, and a lot of them thought that the Mexicans were gone and not going to be back anytime soon. And by the time they realized Santa Ana's army was there, they were fucking surrounded. So I was very impressed with the fact that they uh, handled all the history well and managed to make a pretty entertaining movie uh, with not quite as much fat as the 1960 version. Uh, kind of. They got they got the Santa Ana capture right, too, because he was not mm-hmm. captured in battle. He was captured after the battle, trying to flee disguised as a as a private. Whereas, I mean, I, I found the the original very entertaining. Uh, this one definitely had more of a realistic tone that I appreciated. Would I watch it again? I don't know. Would you watch the original again? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Because I, I was like, if I had to choose one, I would definitely watch this again. And I think it's a shame that it was considered a huge flop. Because yeah, and compar- that... Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. sorry. I was just going to say, in comparison, this one, to my taste, is much better. Yeah, it was definitely much better. And that's the reason why I never watched it, because it had had such bad reviews and everything. I was like, nah, I don't really want to see it, because I just didn't want to, you know, see the the Alamo get shit on, you know? And now that I've seen it, I was like, man, this is pretty good. I'm sorry. I'm I'm kind of upset that I haven't watched it before now. Yeah, I'm wondering why it did so poorly. Um, Well, looking, looking at this, digging a little bit more, this opened the same week as The Passion of the Christ. And they think because of that, it only earned nine million its first weekend. Ouch! Yeah, and it closed with twenty-two million in the domestic. I mean, you consider at the time. I mean, Billy Bob Thornton was kind of at the height of his powers. Uh, Jason Patrick was still pretty relevant. I mean, he's he's still acting, but he's not quite where he was late nineties, early two thousands. Patrick Wilson was pretty early on and getting some notoriety. It just it seems kind of a surprise that it didn't. Yeah, it didn't do better. Maybe it was. I mean, Passion of the Christ was a juggernaut mm-hmm. at the time. I mean, just a juggernaut. Because yeah, it's it's a decent film. I mean, it's it's I, I it definitely deserved a bit more box office than it got. I think. 
Yeah, yeah, I was not looking forward to this, and when I saw the run times on these films, I was like, ugh. But I am glad we did this show because uh, I enjoyed both films, even though I massively preferred this one over the original. And just a quick note before we go away, having uh, been to the actual Alamo in San Antonio several different times, um, it's a it's it's a pretty cool little little site. Um, I wouldn't say it's it's worth like you know going to San Antonio just to see it. But if you ever happen to be in Texas or around San Antonio or whatever, it's worth going to go see. The downtown itself has, like, there are a few walls remaining here and there of the original structure that are just kind of, like, you know, covered in glass and preserved. But, you know, the majority of it is just the chapel and and a few walls around the chapel and a lot of displays and stuff in there. And there's a big monument with all the names carved into it and everything. And You know, there's a lot of really cool stuff, but... um, but like, and there's actual areas like walking around downtown because the rest of the downtown just looks like an actual downtown. It just happened to be these these historical Texas relics like stuck in the middle of downtown. Like you'll be walking down the street and suddenly there'll be just a pane of glass on the sidewalk, and they're like, "Oh, we found you know this was the former you know um, bar- you know barrack site of whatever, and we found this bedding. You can look down and see like actual you know artifacts from the Alamo just there in the street." Huh, That's that is cool. kind of cool. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. And saying the words Texas Texas artifacts is kind of a strange sentence. Did you know that Jackie Gleason is Jason Patrick, Patrick's grandfather? No. I didn't. That's, That's wild. weird. Yeah. That's some fun post trivia trivia. Yeah, I just I'm I'm clicking on him to uh, cuz I liked his character in this one and his death, good god. That I mean, I suppose when these guys come in and they see he's reaching for that knife. Oh, right. And another, and... I just remembered another one of the things that I've saw in San Antonio in this, it, like literally in the sidewalk like that was a, a, there was a stack of cannonballs that they found still intact. Oh, cool. Yeah. Nice. So I think we've come to the end on this one. Should we do the thumbs up, thumbs down? Yeah, yeah I think it's obvious, but we do out of tradition in any case. Yeah, I'm thumbs up on both. I would watch them both again. Pat, how about you? Oh, I am 100% thumbs up on both of them simply because of the history, the everything, the the importance of it to Texas history and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I I love the Alamo. Cool. I remember it every day. (laughs) It's a little closer for me. I I still give a reluctant thumbs up to the original because you just don't, like Joel says, anything that it would uh, now be all CGI, they had 7,000 costumed extras and like that's that's worth something. It, it buys this film a thumbs up from me, and I, I'm a pretty enthusiastic thumbs up about the 2004 version. Uh, yeah, I mean I'm thumbs up on both. I found them both to be entertaining and interesting, and uh, I, I like I said, I don't know if I'd watch them again, but I'm glad I watched them. I'm glad I watched them too. It kind of reignited my Alamo passion. Ah. <laughs> I want to go back to San Antonio again now. Shall, shall we have a vote of Patrick sitting here doing the show wearing his coonskin cap? And nothing else. He's renamed himself Alamo Passion. <laughs> Put away your Bowie knife. Maybe <laughs> cock it. <laughs> <laughs> right, so if you have your thoughts about uh, either of these films or anything else we do here on the podcast, maybe you have a show suggestion, let us know. Give us a call at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. His neighbors like, call the cops, Maurice. The neighbor kid's got the coonskin cap on again. <laughs> and my, All right. <laughs> my, my sidekick would be Daniel Poon. 
Oh my god. <sighs> it's still funnier than you, Joel. Um, so we're looking for more of this. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Blueberry Stitcher. We are on Spotify, Podbean, all over the freaking place. And Joel, what do we have coming up soon? Uh, bang, bang, bang. We're talking about the 4th of July. Uh, we're going to be talking to some animals with Dr. Doolittle and the plane. We are heading to Fantasy Island. Cool. If we're talking to the animals, they're going to tell us they do not like the 4th of July. That's very true. Fuck. I am not looking forward to it again. Nope. But look, I'm looking forward to talking about it. But yeah. Yeah. Sure, there'll be some good I almost blew myself up stories. Or I tried to blow myself stories. One or the other. All right. So. That's all, folks. Okay. <laughs> Just like that. funky. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Remember the Alamo. Why is Jesus' BAC so high? Mr. Nida, Mr. Billy, I found you.